Welcome everyone to Rockin' Nation Podcast. Uh, this is an episode of the Cocktail Hour featuring Matthew J. Harris and Sam T. Snelling. Uh, we have given up on sports. It's never coming back. The coronavirus has taken over the country, the world, and uh, it has sufficiently killed sports. So no more sports. So this podcast from henceforth will be called the Cocktail Hour. Um, I am sipping currently on a lovely Four Roses Small Batch Select with a single ice cube. Uh, Matt, how are you? What are you drinking? The loveliest distilled water from my refrigerator in a stately Nalgene bottle. I uh, I did forget to send the memo uh, out on the, 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 the format change for this podcast, so Matt may be... Uh, trekking a little behind um so for the podcast formerly known as dive, dive cuts um this would be season three and episode 20, 24 24 say, 25 24 i think yeah somewhere in there and uh and last we met we talked to our friend cj moore about basketball um since then, uh, there's been a little bit of actual Mizzou basketball news. I guess we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that, get it out of the way, and then we'll move back to our, our regular um, format of, of talking about cocktails and booze. Um, but Missouri got not one but two commitments, uh, essentially filling all their roster spots. Matt, tell me, how excited were you the moment that Ed Chang tweeted out his commitment graphic? Uh, I will admit I was torn because I was happy for the young man. It's fantastic that he's picked uh, an institution at which he can continue to pursue his chosen vocation. Um, it's a lot of hard work after a detour to a JUCO. Um, but I had started to get to kind of a macabre point where I enjoyed watching what it is admittedly a small segment of the Missouri fan base. Uh, be apoplectic when a player did not pick the Tigers. Because um, <laughs> it has kind of run the game. Like, after Justin Turner committed, it was like just deep, genuine disappointment. Then a couple mi- more misses slowly, like, amped the rage machine up. Like, it, it slowly increased the decibel level. And if they had missed on Ed Chang, um, I'm not sure what would have resulted. But I'll never know now. Um, so that was where I was. Uh, conflicted emotions. Uh, you know, wanting to see the Petri dish of, uh, you know, the human experience play out, you know, as a six foot eight combo forward uh, decided where he was going to spend the next two years of his life. So that that's my general uh, view on the Ed Chang commitment. So I find the range of emotions of Mizzou Twitter to be like one of the really more interesting things. Um, it oscillates wildly and quickly, and it just and there's like there's really a, like this kind of hilarious, uh, but at the same time like a little bit depressing, um, like schism of really negative Mizzou Twitter, like overtly it's a dark place, man. <laughs> like, like to the point where I like I feel like I should be sending, uh, you know, like like you know, police officers out to somebody's house just to check on them, see if they're okay. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, if, if you're, you're feeling like your feelings are going to uh, overwhelm you or you're not quite sure where your night is going to go and you're just worried, uh, just drop a, uh, a DM at the Rock'em Nation Twitter account um, and, and we're, we're there for you. We're, we're here uh, collectively as people. We're, we're going to get through this. It's going to be fine. And and uh, as we mentioned earlier, this is now a cocktails podcast. We can we can, you know, do the appropriately healthy thing for someone in crisis, and that's prescribe you alcohol. And, so, well, we are always. How could that make things worse? Responsible that, drinkers, that, that... Matthew. Responsible. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Uh, this is my first on the night, so I'm I'm just getting started. I've had zero uh, alcoholic beverages this evening, so you are ahead of me. Oh. Uh, no, the, the Ed Chang commitment in all seriousness, um, I think it had kind of been trending where we thought it was going to go in terms of what the staff was going to do in the marketplace, um, which had kind of cleared. Well, yeah, so the, the the moment that like Justin Turner decided that he was going to uh, go back to Bowling Green, I think that basically sealed the rest of the spring from Missouri because of the, the, you know, the, the lack of real difference makers on the market. And not so much the lack of real difference makers. Cause there were some, um, you know, we're going to have slightly more transfers than we did a year ago. But I think the difference is, is that, you know, if you're a program like Missouri where you're not, you know, in contention next year, um, you know, and I say that not to denigrate what the team could do next year, but like if you look at the hot stove right now and you, and you were a graduate transfer and you were trying to assess rosters and the viability for success next season, Missouri maybe doesn't have the most compelling case. And if you've got um, blue bloods or you've got, you know, teams that are probably going to be vying for, let's say a top six seed in the NCAA tournament next year calling you, that's probably who's going to be the one that, you know, you pick up the phone and listen to. And, you know, I wrote in a piece this week I did on the transfer market that what's really happened the last two years, too, is you see teams like Kentucky or Louisville, Duke, you know, North Carolina. You know, you see those types of programs now, Gonzaga, you know, moving into the transfer market and really taking kind of that top, you know, tier of talent and sort of siphoning it off. You know, back in the day... Fred Hoiberg kind of had the run of the market, you know. Um, even two or three years ago, Eric Musselman could go in and get guys like the Martin Twins. Those kinds of guys were available to, you know, high, you know, to average high major programs or quality mid-major programs, and that's changed now. So if you're Missouri, you know, you really have to be selective in who you target and in who you, you know, decide to pursue at that level because they're going to have options elsewhere. You've got to be able to say to them, you are our top pick. You are the sole focus of, that we're going to have on the market right now. And they did that with Turner, or at least that was sort of my perception was that they prioritized Justin Turner and they tried to, you know, check in and keep some other guys, you know, in play. But, you know, through late March and early April, just the pace of things was moving so quickly that you kind of had to put your marker down somewhere and they did that with Turner. And once that didn't pan out, your pivot, you know, is, you know, comes with having to change sort of your expectations and sort of your, your end goal for trying to work in that space. So one of the things that I 
tried to uh, at least kind of touch on um, with my roster piece uh, following. Well, I was originally writing it for the you know Ed Chang commitment, and then and then Drew Bugs popped also uh, before I could kind of get that out um, on NFL Draft Weekend. Like good weekend to you know get your uh, your commitment news buried in the the midst of sports news, but um, but I was trying to kind of go back in time a little bit to how people felt about Missouri kind of going into the, the year. And I think maybe some of it is my own expectations and what I thought Missouri was certainly capable of. Um, I thought that they were going to end up being on the right side of the bubble. Uh, and they shot the ball in a way that was not conducive to so, that. Uh, that. That put them way, way uh, beneath the NIT bubble. Um, but I think when you kind of go back to going into the season and you look at what happened and, uh, and even like, you know, losing time from Jeremiah Tillman, uh, losing less time, but still not insignificant time from Mark Smith. Um, and the amount of sort of change up in the season, I think there's a realistic, I don't want to say expectation, but a realistic possibility that the team that we expected to see um, at least more frequently and the team that maybe we saw more late in the year where uh, Missouri was far more competitive um, is the team that if Missouri was able to clean themselves up around the margins uh, and stay healthy, that we would see a lot more of next year. Um, Now, do I think that they went into this offseason thinking we need to stand pat and and just stick with what we've got? Well, no. I think that they went out and they saw somebody like Justin Turner come available and they said, that's the kind of guy that we need. A guy that's going to be immediately eligible, that can play on the wing, play on the ball, uh, but work just as well off the ball. Uh, and you can rely on for points. Like You can rely on for a reasonably... A uh, high level of efficiency and scoring, uh, and somebody who can who can get you buckets uh, from the wing position and 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 from the combo guard position, something that Missouri has not really had with any level of consistency. So I, you realize that they they recognize the need for what what was there, and they tried to plug it in, and it just didn't work out. So they pivot. And immediately try to do what we sort of refer to as filling in around the margins. So what was a huge weakness for them last year was three-point shooting. So you try to find a guy, and not a guy who's going to come in and give you 30 minutes a night. But if you're going to give you know, 10, 12 minutes a night to somebody, you want that somebody to shoot like 35 to 40% from three-point range. Where Missouri last year was getting guys in that range who were shooting 28 to 30 you know like right i was gonna say like 20 to 25 yeah. i mean in some cases like you know uh, you know kobe brown mitchell smith guys that were playing the four spot with regularity uh you know even javon pickett were nowhere near 30 percent now if you improve that number to you know like the mid to high 30s now you're seeing more efficient lineups scoring the basketball so they got that the other thing, like, okay, so Drew Bugs is interesting. 
Um, not a bucket getter. We need to be very clear about that. This was not a, but this that's <laughs> but that was not the objective no. in trying to go get this pl- this type of guy. So I think that a lot of people are going to look at Ed Chang and Drew Bugs and say, well, they needed wing scoring and they went and got a three and D type player and a backup point guard essentially. And how does that work? And I think this is a point where you sort of talk about in which we've talked about late in the year as we kind of watched it wind down, which is Drew Smith played an ungodly number of minutes last during sec play. I think he, over the last 17 games, he cleared 35 minutes, like 13 or 14 times. It, and his usage rate, while only in like the low 20s, around 22%, when you're doing 22% usage on 35 minutes a night, that is a heavy, heavy workload to put on a guy. And it's not like it's come down, initiate the offense, move off the ball. He's having to sometimes create out of pick and rolls. He's having to do a lot of movement, a lot of creation. Those are heavy, heavy possessions. And also at the other end, a lot of times he's picking up the best offensive player for the opponent. So his work rate is just insane. And, you know, we saw it at LSU and we saw it down the stretch. You could really see kind of his legs going from him. His, you know, that kind of little mid-range floater he has, you know, after he manages to get some throw on the brakes after he gets into the lane on a pick and roll. Those were starting to get short-armed. He wasn't getting the kind of elevation on them. You know, he just did not look like he had his legs with him. And, you know, this is a move, again, at the margins. If you can't go get a proven wing scorer, can you go get a secondary ball handler and move, you know, Xavier Pinson, a guy who I think probably profiles better as a combo guard, off the ball a little bit. You know, or you can at least have a guy in Drew Bugs who can come in and sort of man the point position and play alongside either of those guys and just ease the work rate there. You know, because I think I think that's important. If you're gonna have guys, especially in an offense which seems like it's headed to a ball screen heavy kind of system, you're gonna have to give some guys some rest. And you're gonna have to be able to have some pretty even distribution if you're going to pump a lot of possessions through them. So this, to me, was almost like purchasing an insurance policy and getting a guy who you know is going to be inclined to pass and create and set up others while you're you know, putting a guy on the bench and essentially to give him a breather. So that's where I think the bugs thing comes in. And I wanted to just make be very clear about that, that even people like me were saying, this doesn't really fit their need, but when you really step back and kind of look at the larger scope of the roster, it's not the worst move that they could have made. If the, if this is if this is the logic behind it, so we'll, mm-hmm. we'll see though. Well, right. So a lot went wrong for Missouri, and I like I, I kind of tend to look at like a scope of outcomes. Um, I mean, you, I think you and I kind of both tend to be uh, data driven and. When you look at like best case scenario, and I think when we looked at our sort of preseason projection for what Missouri, uh, what we were projecting Missouri to do, that was definitely on the higher side of projection. To me, like that wasn't the median. Um, I don't think we projected like the best possible outcome for Missouri, um, but it was the high side, uh, which I think 
if I'm not mistaken, was ten and yeah, eight, like right? 10 and eight, nine and nine. Um, but well, yeah, with some with some like tiebreakers, I think that's how we got them to six. Uh, tiebreakers. Yeah, so they essentially, like they held a tiebreaker that got them into sixth place. Um, so a good a good overall outcome is what that that I think we projected. So I, I'm kind of saying that because I, I feel that what we got was on the l- lower end of not the not the absolute worst case not the absolute worst case but definitely towards the bottom um i would say like the bottom probably 20 percent of outcomes um so when you're when you're talking about like and the, and the reason i think that that's it's reasonable to say that that's the bottom 20 percent of outcomes is because of you know the the data points that we did have when Missouri played well. They played like, I think, uh, a top thirty team. Top thirty teams some nights. Other nights maybe top fifty. Uh, when they won, they were consistently a top fifty team. When they played well slash won, it was it was even higher. So the the buy in then uh, kind of going into next season is. They really, and, and I think this is kind of where a little bit of the negativity kind of comes in, and, and I get it, um, because both you and I have sort of felt for a while that Missouri has been caught in this negative feedback back loop where ever since, I don't know, like Jonte's injury. So kind of coming off that first season, I mean, even though it was a little rocky because, you know, M- MPJ got hurt and they had to deal with that they still made the NCAA tournament they had a successful season with a lot of young talent there was a lot of reason to feel hopeful Jonte gets hurt the next year and and since then like Missouri won like no actual recruiting battles um they obviously missed the NCAA tournament had a rough year had injuries uh come back the next year it's basically the same kind of year. Uh, only our re- expectations had been raised a little bit because we thought, hey, like you know, they've aged, they've matured a little bit more. They should be as good, if not better. Well, that didn't happen. So over the course of a year and a half, it just feels like everything around the program was negative. So at what point does Missouri catch a break? Maybe never. I mean, at some point it'll happen, but maybe not under Conzo Martin. I mean, we just don't know. I mean, it could be you go into next year, another guy gets hurt, wrong guy gets hurt, and and you have another year like this, and then they're trying to figure out a way to to pay the buyout. Like that's that's in the range of possibilities. But if we're talking about median uh, outcome or an outcome that would even be on the, the positive side. I, I think you can look at next season as being a year by improving around the margins, improving within the guys on the roster. Uh, and, and you can kind of make your move into the upper tier of the SEC. Now, I don't think Missouri remotely has the kind of talent on the roster to contend for like an SEC title. Um, but I think kind of going into the season, expectations will be low, but I think that given the right sort of recipe, uh, they could surprise some people. This, I think the one thing you have to look at is that 
spring is a time where I think what you're really trying to do, I think most teams in the transfer market is you're trying to you're trying to shore up you know weak spots on the roster or you're trying to add a commodity that you don't already have in your rotation. And that's what Missouri did. I mean, when you look at the last five years of SEC transfers, the median transfers averaging 22 minutes a game and eight points. Like that, you know, the median transfer sees their scoring average dip by two to three points. They see their minutes decline by five per night. They see their usage drop by about five percentage points. Like Missouri would not have done that if they had landed Justin Turner. Justin Turner would have come in and been a 30 minute a night guy. His usage probably would have eased a little bit. Um, just because of, you know, he'd be on a high major roster with theoretically some better support around him. But that was going to be a plug-and-play guy that was supposed to be a high-quality starter. Once you didn't get that guy, you kind of fall into the same, you know, range as a lot of other teams where you're trying to find, like we're saying, that guy who can help you at the margins or at least, you know, shore up your roster in a way that's going to, you know, position it for some success. This is going to be about what Konzo can do in player development. It's going to be really, uh, I think, sort of probably the the litmus test of what he and this staff can get out of guys they recruited. You know, Torrance Watson, you know, as we talked about with CJ, that was a guy who, you know, everyone is rooting for. Great guy, does everything the way you want, great person. But, you know, Torrance has... You know, outside of eight games, not sort of, I think, hit the expectation that a lot of people thought he was of what he was going to be in this program. You know, that's, you know, now is kind of the Rubicon for him where he's got to decide or he's got to show that he can grow into a, you know, serviceable SEC starter. Jeremiah Tillman, you know, for the last two off seasons, we've talked about, you know, can he take a step forward, you know, you know, with mental resiliency to stay on the floor? Can he, you know, be a guy who's going to, you know, impact the game consistently. That, that's that got to happen now. That has to happen now. You know, we know people are high on Xavier Pinson and what he did down the stretch, but that's got to be every night now. You know, this is, you know, I think the one thing that sort of, I think, dawned on everyone as this process went on was that there there is no quick, you know, fix coming in. There is no Cassius Robertson who's going to be plopped in and, you know, suddenly be a 16 point a game score. It's going to, this is going to be a measure of what Martin's program really is. And, you know, you know, and about its durability. And, you know, I, I agreed with CJ that, yeah, there were some bad injuries last year, but if Torrance Watson's in a good place, you can overcome that. If Xavier Pinson's consistent, you could overcome that. You know, there were if guys developed in a way that we anticipated them to develop in the program, again, maybe you would not have, you know, had a, you know, the the most optimal outcome with Jeremiah Tillman sitting and Mark Smith missing seven games, but you would not have seen, you know, just the kind of inconsistency in some of the really just woeful performances that we saw. So I think this is a year where, you know, and I think the offseason and the transfer markets really confirm this where it's on the guys who are in the building. You know, that if this is going to happen, it's going to be that way. So we'll, we'll see. But I think it's, I just think that's sort of the, the, the posture we have to take, you know, moving through the rest of the summer. So really, if 
Drew Bugs wants to become Cassius Robertson. We're both okay with that, though, right? <laughs> I mean, I think you you did sort of say in your your like transfer piece, uh, immediately eligible transfers, um, that Missouri had sort of experienced like some of the best possible outcomes of those transfers. Uh, so that's just going to continue the trend um, that. Immediately eligible transfers, um, Drew Bugs and uh, Ed Chang are both going to far exceed our expectations and lead Missouri to a, we'll say, Elite Eight? Sure. Sure. <laughs> oh. Okay. No, that's... I, I think the... I, I just I, I find the transfer market interesting just because I think it's you know it there's always hope and there's the allure that okay we can go get this one piece that we're missing and then everything will just fall into place and that that rarely ever works and you know it's I, I still think at the end of the day it's about the guys you've brought in you know how you've you know been able to kind of put those pieces together and you know how they're gonna function cohesively that that's going to determine your fate here um but we'll see you know i I think you know expectations i think you know for drew and ed are are modest so that's probably a good thing in a certain sense like i don't think anyone i think people are going to look at them as guys who are going to come in and be components to the roster and not necessarily guys who who have to you know are going to be asked to shoulder a ton of the burden so I think if you're looking, you know, for realistic expectations, I think that that's going to be the case for them. Um, but it's going to be up to the guys who have been here for multiple years to be uh, to be the ones to take a step forward and uh, to elevate the program. Yeah, I feel like that's going to be like a fairly consistent theme uh, from here until the next time that they play basketball, which hopefully is, is in November. Uh, hopefully is in November. Um, I mean, we'll have plenty of other recruiting stuff to talk about that will impact future rosters, but uh, but certainly as far as um, next season is concerned, I think it's it's important uh, and probably important for Konza Martin's future um, that this the, the team that he has, the guys that are on the roster, are uh, are able to sort of figure out their consistency issues and, and, and find a switch that maybe doesn't make them, you know, the ultimate in consistency, but, but they're able to find something that makes them more consistent than not. And they're able to play more high end games than, than not. And, and maybe that's enough to kind of get them into the tournament. Maybe it, it, the SEC will be interesting to see this year. I, I think the one, case you could have made for this program a year ago is the SEC was kind of in a transitional state. Um, we saw a little bit more roster turnover than expected, and, and recruiting classes weren't as uh, uh, strong as they have been in the past. Um, that's going to be a little bit different this year. Uh, I think we're going to see a little bit more roster continuity, and we're going to see uh, an uptick, or not an uptick, but uh, six or seven programs are going to really help themselves on the recruiting trail. So the question for Missouri may be if they do improve, you know, will that improvement come at the same time the league kind of 
returns to form that we'd seen in the past couple of years. So that that's another variable to consider, but that won't really be a factor until we know NBA draft decisions and who knows when guys will decide to pull their name or keep their name in. So that's that's further yeah, down the, the road. The uncertainty right now, not just with like guys leaving for the NBA, uh, but also how not being able to have your players on campus for offseason workouts, how long um, you know players are not able to congregate and and get together uh, on campus, um, you know what that does to the overall schedule. Uh, there's just a lot of uncertainty, and I guess if there is one maybe small benefit to all this is a lot of the teams that were probably looking to take a step forward, um, your Kentuckys and uh, I would say Tennessee's probably in that group with their recruiting class. Auburn uh, had a good Arkansas, all good recruiting classes, um, you know, trying to blend a lot of new players um, in a short amount of time and in a shorter amount of time than they're certainly accustomed to. Like, as an example, we're, we're used to kind of seeing Kentucky kind of hit the skids a little bit. Uh, and then right around late December, they kind of, you know, put things together. Um, so does all of this, and, and honestly, like Kentucky's going to have a really loaded roster, they're, but they're flipping the entire roster. And I don't think that, I don't think I expected that to happen. Um, I certainly expected they would have some, some of those guys from this year kind of come back and it looks like they're not going to have anybody other than um, Keon Brooks. Yeah. So that with, uh, you know, Tennessee obviously having a really, really talented incoming class. Um, they do still maintain some continuity with Fulkerson coming back. Uh, Jordan James coming back. Um, you know, obviously losing Jordan Bowden will hurt, will hurt them. Um, you know, but they have, three or four really good core pieces that have been a part of the regular rotation that are coming back. And so I think like, this is what I'm going to be interested to see is, um, is how is the, uh, the delays in the off season, um, you know, potential delays at this point, you know, we, we still, we know that guys haven't really been working out together in the spring. Um, but normally by early June, you have all your players on, on campus and going through workouts. And, all. and so how, how is the SEC, how is college basketball impacted in that way? And, and does that help um, somebody like Missouri who you know doesn't have the, as talented a roster, but they've got way more continuity? Um, and they're just kind of searching for a little consistency. And maybe it hurts them because you know the guys that – we're maybe kind of starting to figure it out, uh, kind of go back into a, a little bit of their, their hole and, and come out of it, and they're not able to um, to play with, uh, I guess, the same level that they found at certain points during the season. So there's a whole, just a, my, my way of saying, there's a lot that we don't know. Um, and even if you're positive, feeling positive, feeling negative, uh, I think, the main thing that I, I would take out of all this is there's no right or wrong way to feel because there's never been anything like this maybe since like World War II uh, as far as like college athletics being impacted, um, you know, in a way that uh, means that a lot of us aren't practicing. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's 
it'll be it'll be fascinating to watch for them. But it's the state of play in the league is is going to be interesting. I think it'll you're going to see. I think this you know a year ago draft decisions were interesting, but I feel like this year is going to be even more so because you're also not going to have the ability right now to go out and maybe find another piece. You're not going to find. You know, it's going to be harder to go out into the market and you know sort of you know identify options right now you know whether that's on the transfer market or traditionally you know recruiting right now so it's everyone's sort of working uh in the unknown and having to sort of be adaptable on the fly but uh we shall see the roster assuming no more uh defections assuming uh that all three players uh in the draft right now uh pinson tillman and mitchell smith come back this is this is the set roster this is or this is I guess the core of the roster was scholarships that we're going to see moving forward. So at least there's that potential certainty that this is probably what the roster is going to look like going into next season. We'll see. Maybe, uh, maybe X decides that, uh, his time is now and he's going to go for broke. Um, but, uh, in the meantime, I feel like we know what the roster is going to be. Um, what else is we, Oh, we wanted to talk about the, um, uh, name image and uh, likeness um, vote that came out uh, today actually for NCAA um, I would say overall this is a good news for college sports I think if you're able to um, like I, I tend to think that some of the guys that were questioning um, like Dacian Nix and Isaiah, uh, Isaiah Todd blanks on names. I, Isaiah Todd yeah Jalen Green um, Isaiah Todd was the one I was I was blanking on. I was like, I knew it was Isaiah. Um, but those three guys are going to go play in the G League and earn hundreds of thousands of dollars. So my overall take on the NIL stuff is I don't really see a lot of impact to guys like that. Guys that... Two years will probably be able to make the jump straight to the NBA anyway because we're probably going to see one and done go the way they die. Yeah, more more the the one and done level players are 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 probably going to be more frequently one and done. Where I think you'll see more of the impact, and to me this is probably better overall for college basketball. Is I think you're going to see fewer like borderline guys just decide to make the jump, you know, because they will be able to profit um, while they're on campus. Uh, and I think like a, a good example um, uh, would be like somebody like Jared Harper at Auburn, um, a guy who in a lot of ways is probably doesn't have a huge NBA career ahead of him, um, but a guy who is every bit a college basketball star, um, absolutely helped turn Auburn's basketball program into um, one of you know, national renown. And I think for all the talent that Auburn has been able to sort of collect and, and, and Bruce Pearl has added to that roster, I don't think anybody has been more integral to the growth of Auburn basketball than Jared Harper. I mean, obviously taking away Bruce Pearl and, uh, and him recruiting somebody like Harper. But I think it's from the players, Harper is a guy that was so valuable to what they did and then left after last year um, because he was just going to go get paid, and he wasn't going to get drafted. 
Um, and so he's going to go to the G League, and, and he's going to maybe go overseas, and he's going to earn a check. Uh, but if you know a car dealership in Auburn, Alabama can pay him you know, $50,000 a month to, to be in ads uh, to keep him around to make things easier for him, uh, then I think in a lot of ways, like, th- those kind of guys are going to... Um, are going to stick in in college basketball more frequently. At, at least that's my hope because you know I do love the pageantry of college sports and you know I I like watching college basketball. I think it has become an inferior product, and the reason I think it's become an inferior product is because too often it is losing the more marginal guys. If it can find a way to keep the more marginal players. Um, then I, I think it's it's going to inherently become a better product. Yeah, I think you're looking at a guy, a name that I think of this year is kind of Jared Butler, who is Baylor's point guard. Maybe he isn't a guy who, who could probably try and contend for a second round or late first round slot, but is he going to want to make the jump and go get paid right now? Or is he going to you know, want to stick around and see what he can you know, do with another year in Baylor's program? Those decisions are made easier if you can, you know, make some coin on the side and do it in a way that's above board. And I think that that gets to be an attractive option for those types of guys. Um, you know, the opportunity cost for them goes down a little bit. I think I read a couple of years ago that the average difference between um, the lifetime difference in earnings between someone with a college degree and a high school diploma was about $800,000. I think a Fed bank study came up with that. And if you look at the marginal revenue product of a college basketball player, it's about two hundred thousand a year. So over four hundred year, over four years, that's eight hundred thousand dollars. So you're not going to realize all of that value, obviously. You know, locally, I don't think you're going to have guys. Not every guy is going to be getting two hundred k a year to play. But I think if you can monetize a little bit of that revenue stream, and you know, earn a little bit of keep, I think you make the process and the decision. Staying a little bit easier. Um, so that'll be fascinating to see. I don't really buy people doomsaying the NCAA is, you know, is, you know, headed for the grave here. We had one and done in the late 90s and early 2000s. College basketball survived. College basketball survives because there are tons of alums in this country who view basketball and football as a proxy for their love of their alma mater, and they care about that. It's deeply, deeply emotional, and we all know that. So I don't think the NBA is going to change the G League. You know, offering the top 15 prospects in the country is going to make alumni of 350-plus schools feel any less passionately. Um, I think the one thing that's going to be interesting to see is, you know, just how the the mechanics of this work. I don't get caught up in it too much because I think schools are going to be incentivized to help their players, you know, do this the proper way. You know, I, I saw stuff on Twitter and, you know, general comments being like, good luck getting these kids to fill out 1099 forms. Look, what they're going to do is they're all going to take them in a room. They're all going to sit around with them. They're going to bring in people to help them do that. They're going to bring in compliance staffers or athletic staffers, and they're all going to help them fill out 1099 forms. Good luck <laughs> to them keeping track of all their other, you know, funds and where all this money's coming from. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to have, you could have compliance flip. Compliance can, you know, ask these kids to give them business names, DBAs, you know, 
tax ID numbers and all the appropriate documentation. The kid, they can call the business for all I know and just say, hey, can you pass this along so we can make sure we have it on file? There's going to be incentive to do that. You know, I think that you know, these schools are going to want to, you know, do that to make sure they're above board. They're not going to want to run afoul of this. So really the question here is, you know, what what's going to be interesting is, we're going to finally get to see what the value of a elite basketball or elite football player is. And it's going to be really, really fascinating to see what the market actually values these guys at. So that, that's where my head kind of goes here is I worry less about the mechanics and the incentive of stuff to more to the kind of in game of this, which is finally we get to see kind of what these guys are worth. And, you know, it's going to, and I suspect we're going to, you know, see that they're worth a lot more than we <laughs> than we ever thought, and we're just and it's going to be one of those deals where like the mechanics work themselves out, and you know we're going to adapt to this, you know, and the Olympic model is going to be one that's going to work pretty well, but I, I don't think it's going to kill college basketball. I don't think it's going to you know we're going to have kids being chased down by the IRS for not reporting income. I think we're just going to see departments have to you know work through some kinks but i think ultimately they're going to be incentivized to do it so it's it's just going to be like anytime you do a change like this there's there's going to be you know things that crop up you can't anticipate in the process but all parties are incentivized to do this the right way you know guys want to get paid schools don't want to get in trouble with the ncaa you know once those incentives are aligned i think everyone will find solutions pretty pretty expediently yeah, I'm really kind of curious about the uh, the <laughs> what so these guys are going to end up earning. I think it's it's going to be funny in a lot of ways, um, and it like it kind of goes back to and we, we've talked about this a little bit. Um, you know, like I see a common complaint from certain fans saying, "Oh, well, this will mean that like only a certain number of schools." will you know get the best players and i'm just like i I, those people right those people aren't paying attention to the existing uh recruiting of you know for both football and basketball i mean you look at it's like the taint the same like you know five to ten schools at the top every every year um what this does is it does allow schools and coaches and programs to be more creative when it comes to targeting the kind of player especially like in basketball like i i get with football it's maybe gets a little bit tougher you know the quarterback is probably going to earn more than running back might earn a bunch the you know star defensive lineman um you know maybe the offensive guard isn't quite as popular but uh but with basketball i mean if you look at like what missouri was trying to accomplish in 2017 with Michael Porter Jr. And I think you are going to see more schools be a little bit more strategic in targeting the kind of guy that they think can be a difference maker for their program. Uh, If you're able to find a way to get a guy the kind of deal that will make it worthwhile for him you know, meanwhile, like North Carolina, and I actually brought them up randomly, not because they took Caleb Love, um, 
but North North Carolina has like four of those guys. Uh, now, do they probably have more resources in general? Yeah, but but the point is, is that you can target the one guy, uh, and and North Carolina has to target a lot more. Um, and so, like a school like Missouri can be at an advantage in that aspect because they can work to pool more resources to get a higher level guy and 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 see if it pays off for them. Um, at the end of the day, too, guys. Guys will get paid. Guys may want to earn money, but they they also recognize the long term value to them is to play. Is to so like if everyone's worried that like Kentucky's going to recruit the top you know thirteen five stars, there's a finite number of minutes that money can't buy. There are still two hundred minutes that you have to allot across five positions. Like a guy might you know, be able to go to Kentucky and make some good change in college, but he's not going to play in the NBA if he's sitting on the bench. You know, if at some point you're going to have to put something on tape and guys are going to want to play, they're going to want minutes. That's in the mix too. Um, So there's always those kind of incentives too. Like guys are going to have to balance that out. You know, okay, I could maybe potentially have more like NLI money here, but am I going to play? What's that going to do for me long-term? I think the other thing, like you brought up MPJ, is think about this if you're a Missouri fan. Missouri hired Michael Porter Sr. and essentially wrote a $1.125 million check or $1.25 million check to Michael Porter Sr., which helped his sons wind up here. Imagine if you know businesses could just write checks to Michael Porter Jr. and he could be on the roster here, or in Jante Porter, and, you know, you don't have to hire Michael Porter Sr. You can now have a different you know, coach in there. You know, It opens up different possibilities now in different arrangements, and I think it just puts things on the table. You know, I think that that's my big thing is there's been this has been a cartel and it's been a black market, and now we're at least going to have this stuff on the table. At least we're going to you know, be reporting this stuff. At least we're going to know now what guys are getting at different institutions. So that's... To me, that's the biggest thing here is we're at least going to have some transparency. I don't think that means it's going to, you know, root out all corruption or all, you know, backroom dealing. But it's a positive step forward to at least just put this thing on the table and to at least, you know, get around arrangements like hiring parents or, you know, for whatever we know now with like what happened with the NCAA scandal where we have backdoor kind of, you know, middlemen and shoe runners, all this kind of stuff. It At least you can try and tamp that down by saying, guys, if you just tell us where the money's coming from and you report it, you're fine. We will, like, I I really, maybe that's naive on my part, but I just think that if you tell people, it's okay if you make money now, we just need you to do some reporting and we're going to help you do it, I think you, you could, you're going to go a long way to kind of solving the problem we have now. It doesn't mean that North Carolina's going to recruit less five stars, but at least we're all going to kind of at least understand what resources everyone's kind of committing to the project. So that that's what makes me happy about it. We will have plenty more to talk about um, when it comes to NIL as this kind of gets rolled out also. And as like the deals start coming in, like I think that's what's going to get more interesting is, is instead of like a kid committing, it's going to be, uh, you know, kid commits to hometown school because local dealership <laughs> signed him up for an endorsement. Uh Mockins Ford in Columbia, yeah. this is your time. <laughs> there you go. 
Mike Kehoe and Jeff City, this is your time. You all have you all have been advertising for years. It's time to go. make it you, work. You, you put the uh, the elite basketball player in your commercial. He signs in Missouri. Uh, everybody's happy. Campus Bar and Grill, your time is here. Shiloh, time is here. That's all I'm saying. You need to mobilize if you're going to do so, this. So, Matt, you're not drinking. Yes. Um, no, I'm not. What is your go-to cocktail if you're not just going to put bourbon in a glass? Uh, I do a Manhattan with... Um, usually, like, OGD bonded. Which is not the fanciest thing. Well, OGD bonded is like nineteen bucks, but it's really good rye and it works really well in a Manhattan. Or um, I do a toddy with, uh, and this is usually if it's cold. I usually do like a toddy with Buffalo Trace, or sometimes uh, I mix it up and I use Russell's Reserve. So those are my kind of like go-to cocktails. So. Uh... A little bit as a joke, I kind of said that I was going to pivot to having a, a cocktail-based Twitter account. Uh, I do want to say that last night I tweeted out, um, I, I forgot to hashtag it, so I apologize to those who really love the hashtag WIDT. Um, but last night I had, I'm not a big scotch drinker, I think you know that. I, I like an occasional scotch, but for the most part I'm an American whiskey guy. I like to switch it up. If I'm going to switch it up, I probably prefer um, Japanese whiskey um, more so than uh, than Scotch. But there is a um, a company called Compass Box that I cannot recommend highly enough, mainly because it's a really interesting project. So this guy used to be the master distiller uh, at Johnny Walker, I think. Um, he goes around and just buys barrels from different distillers. So like he'll go to, you know, Lagavulin or um, Laphroaig or one of these um, Scotch makers, and he'll just buy a barrel from them. And he just goes back and he just starts mixing and blending. And and what he ends up doing with that is he ends up basically creating a blended Scotch. And puts it on the market. And so he has one that he's done pretty consistently uh, called Spice Tree. And uh, I am here to endorse it. So if they want to send me some NIL money, uh, I am available for that. But uh, if you are looking to sort of get into scotch, uh, I would recommend it. So it's a good starter if you're somebody who likes American whiskeys. It's not super, like, peaty. It's got some nice spiciness. So it'll kind of remind you of drinking a rye. Um, but really recommend, and it's in a reasonable price range, because I know scotches can get kind of pricey. Um, but my go-to cocktail, I have to say, probably a Negroni. And I'm going to bring this up, Matt, because I have a bone to pick with Stanley Tucci. Why do you... I don't even know where this is going. This is exactly where you saw this podcast going, admit it. I don't even... Me having a bone to pick with Stanley Tucci. So, uh, Twitter, uh, I think last week... Quarantine content's getting <laughs> really, really barren right now. I'm sorry to our listeners. Stanley Tucci is a saint. He's a tri- terrific guy. Brought it inadvertently last week. He's fantastic. He's fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of his work, but 
Nevertheless, I have a bone to pick. Uh, Stanley Tucci put at he put out a video of him making a cocktail. Uh, he was making a Negroni, and he had a serious cardinal error when making a Negroni. So, for those who don't know, uh, Negroni is equal parts uh, gin, uh, Campari, and a sweet vermouth. Um, if you are like me and you like things a little boozier, you can basically have what they call American style uh, Negroni, which is um, is more gin. So basically, you would do double the gin and then your equal parts sweet sweet vermouth and uh, and Campari. But um, yeah, so Stanley Tucci puts all of his ingredients measured properly in a in a in a a you know uh, a proper a cocktail jigger, so he was doing that right. Uh, measures it out, puts it over ice, which is good. He then proceeds to shake this cocktail, Matt. Um, so if you aren't aware, the humanity. This yeah, there the there, there is there is a hard and fast rule for what gets shaken and what gets stirred. If your cocktail is all alcohol, all booze, no juices, you stir it. A martini should be stirred. A Negroni should be stirred. If you shake it, it is going against all like the proper cocktail technique for how like the the kind of texture that a Negroni should have, uh, because basically like the water molecules get uh, infused with the spirit and it gives it a completely different mouthfeel. Which the point of a Negroni uh, Manhattan is in this is family. Is, is to still have that sort of velvety mouthfeel. Um, so yes, stir your Negronis, equal parts gin, Campari, sweet vermouth. Uh, if you are feeling so inclined, a, a twist of either orange or lemon uh, is great over the top. Um, but yeah, so don't pay attention to Stanley Tucci. Stir that drink and uh, enjoy it. It's much better that way. Just the content you all wanted right there. Um just, just hey. what you wanted. There, there was at least one comment to my, my post about that that welcomed But uh, that person's more not a listener. Content. But so, that person so is not a listener. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it, it was, actually, I think it was two. I, I'm going to give credit. I think it was both Levi, uh, who does amazing graphic design. You can just tell Levi on Slack. He's on the Slack channel. You can just no, tell no, no. He listens channel. to the podcast. I'm sure. And the other was our friend Chester, who's uh, who's terrific and also has good cocktail taste. I'm sorry, folks. We've hit an hour in the last five minutes. Was my man's here going after Stanley Tucci, an American hero? So I'm sorry about that. Um, that's it. We're getting out of here. We're not even doing the. I'm disappointed you attacked Stanley Tucci. We're done. We're done. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I don't know. Two weeks. Matt will probably not not be here. I'll have a uh, a, a bartender friend on for for more continued cocktail adventures. Um, don't follow Matt on Twitter. He's he's a lousy follow. Uh, you can follow me though. I talk about cocktails. Tweet all angry responses to Mitch. He's the one who does all of this. He he, he writes and, and all we do is read his notes. That's basically all we do. Um, until then, until two weeks from now. Uh, thanks for tuning in.